Hello and welcome to this week's episode of JogPod, produced for you by the Geographical Association. My name's Mark, I'm the Membership Sales Manager here at the GA and one of the producers of JogPod. In our last episode, we brought to you a panel discussion from this year's GAE conference and we continue the theme this week with Katie Salter's session from the GCSE pathway entitled Ready for Takeoff Using Key Stage 4 to Prepare More Students for A-Level. Early career teachers will find this session especially relevant, but it's suitable for everyone, of course. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to JogPod on your podcast app. And if you're interested in learning more about what the GA has to offer, head over to our website at geography.org.uk. I'll now hand over to Katie. Enjoy the session. Okay. Hello, everyone. Um, it's amazing to virtually see so many of you coming along to my presentation on GCSE strategies in my classroom that I am using to improve attainment so that more students achieve a grade seven, which is our entry into A-level, but also to improve them as A-level geographers as well. So I'm hoping that because there's so many of you from so many different um, levels of experiences and backgrounds, that there'll be enough of the GCSE uh, content to help those in a GCSE classroom and also those who have the privilege of teaching A-level as well, uh, that there'll be some content in there to help you. Uh, so I'm in my third year of teaching at the Burgate School in sixth form, which is the most gorgeous secondary school in Hampshire. I teach Key Stage 3, 4 and 5, but I also teach uh, across the humanities at Key Stage 3 for the first time this year, which has really changed how I teach geography. So there's a little bit of that in there as well if you haven't had the either pleasure or misfortune, depending on your opinion of teaching across the subject. Um, there's a little bit too from my master's with the University of Southampton, so I'm very research-based practitioner, so there's a little bit in there as well um, from what I've gained from that experience. I'll also caveat by saying that last year, my year 11s and I sat the GCSE exam together. I realise that's quite a divisive topic, particularly on Twitter. I've had my fair share of Twitter love <laughs> for that, so there is a little bit in there about what I learned from that experience as well. Um, because it gave me a very unique perspective on what it was actually like and the timing and some of the pressures in the exam. So please don't all pile on me for that. And if you wish to follow me on Twitter, if you don't already do, it's Sensei Aries, uh, because that was what sounded cool at the time. At the moment, it's basically you and McGregor GIFs, but hey, I'm allowed a hobby during the Easter holidays. So let's get started. I should point out that this presentation is not sponsored by Noun Project, but Noun Project is perhaps the best thing I've spent money on for education since YouTube Premium, because I always have music playing in my classroom. And I'm going to go through topics such as extended writing, literacy, subject knowledge, um, boosting evaluation skills, and hopefully you'll be able to bring something out of it. And because I'm not a PowerPoint person, there's very little words on the slide. So hopefully that's okay. Yes, massive thumbs up for Noun Projects. Absolutely amazing. So I'm going to start with boosting extended writing, mainly because this is the first year that I have taught A-level to students I taught at Key Stage 4. And 70% uh, or so of the current A-level cohort are my old year 11 geographers. So there's an awful lot of them. And I realized now with hindsight, that gift that teachers are given, I wish I'd spent longer boosting their confidence with extended writing because that's the biggest jump they've had to face when they're now looking at 20 markers 
and I teach the Regenerating Places unit of the Edexcel A-Level alongside my two amazing colleagues who teach the rest of the A-Level. So between the three of us, we've seen a real um, obstacle for our you know, very talented Year 12 cohort that then are starting to struggle with the extended writing. So I am big on structure. And for my Year 10s, based on my experience with my current Year 12s, I have come up with a very, very formulaic structure, 16 sentences for a nine mark AQA answer that is drilled into them, mainly because I needed to boost their confidence. I think although my class, my current year 10 class and my two year nine classes are very, very well versed in their knowledge and their understanding, I think any student when they're presented with blank paper in an exam, it can actually be quite daunting for them if they don't quite know how they're going to approach it. So they have a 16 sentence structure, which is each sentence has a different purpose and is broken down quite minutely. And the reason why I haven't included it is because it will probably only work for certain styles of teaching like mine, where my NQT, RQT feedback is always that I'm a control freak. And therefore I can have that with my classes is that everything is done in the minute detail, but it means that they, the those who are gaining confidence have something to work from that they know is good and they know works and it involves evaluation and it involves people disagreeing with each other and two very detailed ideas kind of building on what Joe said rather than just a list of things they know about the L'Aquila earthquake in 2009 and then um, for those who are very very confident they can play with the structure a little bit like I would expect them to do at A level so I think if you have the time, and all I did was I, I've been a marker, I've been an examiner, um, but also I just read through every exam answer I could get my hands on. And if the GA are, are willing to share it, I'm happy to share it later on um, because I didn't want it to become the debate of this presentation. Um, and also it builds on patterns. So the structure repeats itself. It goes beyond the peel structure that I'm not the biggest fan of, particularly from talking to colleagues in English who... Uh, particularly on Twitter, have done an awful lot of work looking at the Peel paragraph structure and basically discounting it. So I have worked to kind of move beyond that, or I want my students to be thinking beyond point, evidence, explain, link, and point, evidence, explain, evaluate, link. I want them to be thinking more in terms of how they could present their own point of view the whole way through an answer and acknowledge how people disagree, but stay with the whole thrust of their argument. Otherwise, I think it becomes very formulaic and having marked two years in a row it's an awful lot of um, you've seen the same structures and that's what stood out to me and also I want them to feel confident and it's easier for them to mark as well is you know is sentence eight for example is when they say why something worked really well or to what extent it worked really well and if that is missing it's really easily easy for me to say well you haven't done sentence eight what's sentence eight what's the purpose of sentence eight um, it was meant to be sort of tried and tested this year with my year 10s and their assessment so that I could prove to you that it worked. But of course, things happened. Um, and then building on from structure is the idea of modelling. And I am a massive, passionate advocate for modelling. And because I was one of the first at my school to rock up with a visualiser in my PGCE year, coming from my second placement, came in with my visualiser. And everyone's like, wow, this is amazing, because uh, it wasn't something we'd done at the Burgate before, despite how amazing the school is. It just wasn't something we'd done. And then 
in my NQT year, I was suddenly thrust in front of the staff to do a whole session on modeling and realized actually I don't really know what modeling was. And then having observed colleagues since, um, I realized that what I had said about modeling was probably rubbish because it didn't have any purpose. And as a result, I've narrowed it down to three different ways that modeling with a visualizer or typing on the computer, if you're not confident with your handwriting, as I know some people aren't, should be done. And these are the three ways. And I've tried all of these. My year 11 still miss my visualizer. Um, when we when we went on to remote teaching, the first of my, my year 12s now, my year 12 said to me, so you're going to get the visualizer out, miss? I was like, yeah. And they were like, oh, we're blessed. I'm not sure if it was sarcastic or not. So modeling is really good for helping to grasp structure of answers, but also it increases fluency. And I think that's the bit that people miss out sometimes is it's not just to show how the answer is structured on the page. It's to increase students fluency. And it's always to narrow that gap between the experts, i.e. me, apparently, and the students in the room and to show them how an expert thinks as far as I can be an expert with the diversity of the geography content. My degree is in human geography. So the, the gap is smaller when I'm teaching the physical side than it is with the human side. But I've seen it done wrong when there isn't a clear purpose. It's not just showing students what's going on in your head, because when I'm writing an answer, there's thousands of things going on in my head. Um, so when I'm writing an answer to show them, I have to be really clear about what I'm thinking about, because I think we underestimate at times the fact that our subject knowledge is so innate it's so automatic it comes to us naturally that our cognitive load is less when we are writing these answers so I very rarely use modeling i.e writing by hand onto the camera in my nice handwriting uh, to be about subject knowledge I try to use it instead to be like actually looking at the answer itself because I think sometimes students can't get over the confidence about their knowledge to then be focusing on the structure and when I was teaching my 16 sentence structure I got them to write about things they cared about so I've got a whole array of answers um, from video games to sports etc because at the time I wanted them to understand what a good argument in geography looks like so I took out the in geography and just got them to look at a good argument and by doing that I was able to really focus on the structure or this is what an argument is. You don't suddenly change your mind halfway through an argument. You keep your point of view that, for example, the responses to the L'Aquila earthquake were brilliant. You keep that throughout and then you just bring in disagreement to show why someone else may disagree. You don't get halfway through an argument with your friends and then suddenly change your mind and give the other side of the argument. And that's what a lot of my students in my old year 11 class were doing. So they totally changed their mind. I was like, actually, that's not how people naturally argue. It's not as persuasive. You can acknowledge the counter argument and then come back to your original point. And it was much easier for them to do that with something they were really passionate about, like rules in rugby was quite, as I have a lot of rugby players in my year 10 class, that was quite keen. So their structure, the arguments have developed and they are better geographers as a result because you're allowed to have an opinion in geography. My A-level geographers won't get off the fence because they don't think they're allowed to because they think that's what being a good geographer is. It's like, no, being a good geographer is being able to use your knowledge to come to an understanding, but be able to acknowledge the counterparts. So then when you're modeling in the classroom, you need to be thinking about whether you're looking at structure, whether you're looking at the vocabulary you're using, whether you're looking at it being persuasive. Building on what Joe said, um, I tell my students that a detailed AQA answer is that you are being persuasive about your case studies. 
I, as the examiner, can I believe that you know your case study? And if I can, whether or not it's, I love the idea of taking the name of the place out and whether or not it's more convincing that way. And I will try that. I might challenge them to do that, actually. Can they tell me which case study it is without referencing it? That would be quite interesting. Um, but also, you've got to be persuasive with that. And also, I think you need to be thinking about what the students are doing while you're modelling. So I do three different ways. I either model and they watch. And then I set them a challenge with a different question. That's a pretty formulaic way of doing it. So I've seen that done a lot. Um, I either do live modelling and I do it together. And the way I do that with my 16 sentences is I force them to change the colour of the pen because I stationary queen. I have a lot of pens at the end of each sentence. So they change from when they're explaining a point to when they're evaluating their argument to when someone's disagreeing. It's a different colour each time to force them not to waffle. My um, old year 11 cohort, they lost marks. They cost themselves the top grades because they waffled and lost focus. And my instant learning point from that was, nope, we will no longer waffle. Despite your geography teacher being queen of waffle, I don't want you doing that in your exams. I don't want you doing that when you're talking about something you're passionate about because it dilutes the argument, as you're probably finding now. now. And it means that you can do it much more thoughtfully. So instead of everybody frantically writing an answer together, me included, when we're doing it together, we do it very structured, we do it very slowly, and that makes them think about what they are doing. And then they've got their exercise books, which I wanted to show, but couldn't because they've got them at home to learn from, are beautiful model answers where they can see the structure, they can see what they're developing, just because they've used different colours and because they haven't done it at the speed of light, um, frantically, so the handwriting is much better on the whole. So it's just nice for them to look at. I'm just, I can see the questions coming through. Um, yeah, scaffolding is giving a framework, whereas modelling, yes. Yeah. So scaffolding is when I gave them the 16 sentence structure, like sentence one is where you reword the question, sentence two is you introduce the case study you're going to use, sentence three is what you will do in this answer, what argument are you presenting? That's my scaffold. And then my modelling is when I do it with them. And the third way that I live model is I do it silently. And there's been a lot of debate about this on Twitter. And I'm a big advocate for doing things together. I did everything with my year 11s last year, every answer, every mock exam, even the real ones. Um, and there are some times where we just write an answer together to the same question in silence. And that's when you're modelling the subconscious, subliminal, implicit processes of stopping to think about what you're going to do. It's very hard to do that genuinely. And one of the biggest impacts I saw last year was with a student who her work was immaculate. You'll all have them. We all have them. The students whose work is so beautifully presented and it meant that she never finished an answer on time ever, ever. And when I started modelling, my handwriting is beautiful until I start to rush. And then it's like the worst scrawl you've ever seen. And she saw that through my modelling over and over again. And slowly over time, her answers started to get more untidy towards the end. And she started finishing the answer. And I couldn't have modelled that genuinely through talking through it. I wasn't going to say, and now I'm going to make the conscious decision to make my handwriting worse because it's not a conscious decision. I know I'm doing it, but it's more I'm focusing on getting to the end. So students learn from watching you. And we, uh, there's an in-joke in my classroom that they have um, 10 minutes and 29 seconds to write a nine mark answer, which is the length of the Game of Thrones piece of music, Light of the Seven. And we write to that in the class every time that we do an exam answer because it gets them to understand what the time period is. 
And when we do it without, like say in a exam situation, I can see when they, they finish sort of the same sort of time because they must be hearing it in their heads. Uh, hopefully they've not seen the show. Uh, I did, did worry about that, but it's the right sort of time. Um, so I think if you do it silently and students just pause to watch you or they watch you change, I change the structure of my answer because writing an, uh, an answer I've not seen before live is, is difficult and it's, it gives more learning than one that I've practiced, which is when I do it properly and structured, I'll practice an answer. But if I do it live, I think there is a lot to learn from that. Big confidence thing uh, for teachers and I appreciate that and I appreciate visualizers are a big confidence thing, but it's worth trying. So that was my content on modeling, because I think as long as you know why you are doing it and what you want the students to do while you are doing it, that's really important. But I've seen a massive improvement in the extended answers. And last year's results showed that my class had uh, a mark, a mark and a half above other members of the department. My maths, maths marks were rubbish by comparison. Um, and I've changed that for this year. But they were a mark or a mark and a half above the average because I focused on it quite so much. And they are doing far better at A-level than they think they're doing. And then when you're writing it standard answers, I think the standards of your classroom really matter. Um, so I've started uh, a big fan of spelling tests, despite being a geography teacher, because um, particularly at the moment, now my students are doing everything on GoFormative. It's all on the computer. Spelling is awful. And that concerns me, um, not only because it can cost half a grade, but also because it means I'm not focusing enough on it and that's a weakness on me as a teacher so I have to work on that but also we've done things like association games so we're doing that via remote learning at the moment when I see them virtually if I just say a term um, and they write down everything that they associate with that term and then I take that in to have a look at it's quite interesting actually how students think um, and MFL, my um, one of my assistant heads is a um, modern foreign languages teacher and she taught me a memory game where you just read words and they have to remember how many, they have to write down after, say, you've read all the words, how many they remember. And that's really interesting as well. I'd never thought of it. And they do it for vocab, but I did it to see um, how they linked their topics together. Because then structurally when they're writing, if it's all about retrieval practice, that's probably how they're going to link when they're doing their extended writing. So it's quite interesting to see if they wrote down, say, all of the words that link to tectonics. And then there are words there that weren't there that you didn't say in the first place then that means that they're associating things differently, perhaps to some of my other students who do everything, who would write down every word they could remember from my list to do with a case study. So that was quite interesting for me as well, to sit and have a look at how my students link ideas together, the idea of knowledge and how it links, whether it's rational or complex. Uh, so I thought that was quite good. And then one thing that I think is very important, and I'm not doing it particularly well at the moment, is um, when you're talking in the classroom, and I mean us as teachers, um, I, I go beyond speak like a geographer. I love speak like a geographer. It was the cornerstone of my PGCE. But now I focus on speaking like a scholar. So beyond geographer, I don't just want them, like Joe said earlier, if you were in that amazing session, I don't just want them reeling off facts and figures about the L'Aquila earthquake. I want them to talk about their geography, whether they are knowledgeable and they are informed and they are concise and they are passionate. And I want them to speak like a scholar. I want them to speak like a student of that discipline. So I use that language in the classroom now and I praise that use of language. That was a really concise argument that's speaking like a scholar, because hopefully that means or a student of geography. Hopefully that means they might go away and try that in the other subjects and become better overall rather than just coming into my geography classroom and speaking like a geographer 
when actually the foundations of speaking like a good geographer means they'll also speak like a good historian and a good philosopher because I've seen the same things across the three subjects that I now teach. It's exactly the same. You need to be concise. You need to be passionate. You need to be informative. You need to know things. It's exactly the same. So I'm trying to get rid of those boundaries that students come to geography and do certain things in geography and then leave the classroom. A bit like when they come from English to geography and then forget how capital letters work. I think it works both ways. And I speak in the structures when I'm in my classroom. So if I am explaining something, then I use point, example, explain without fail. And if I am uh, developing an argument with my students, I use the structure that I expect them to use. And I hope that subliminal repetition means that they're getting it. And I always demand, say it better, or even of myself. If I know that I've done it and it's not particularly good, I say to my students, or how could I have said that better? Or when I'm being observed, I say it to the observer who is my mentor, who is incredible and always knows how to say it better than me. So that's on extended writing. And I think the most important thing is the modeling, but to be able to model, you need to have the standards that you're expecting clear in your head. You need to structure it and you need to model all of the time. You need to model when you are talking as well as when you are writing, because eventually then your students do develop it. And my year tens are constantly complimented on how well they speak. Uh, in terms of visualizers, I am an IPVO girl. I have uh, lots of IPVO visualizers, but few visualizers are fine as well. Then we move on to knowledge quizzing, which I am still doing at A level. Yes, IPVO is the best for visualizers. Um, knowledge quizzes, I'm going to be frank, I'm going to be honest. I have developed my knowledge quizzes because in the exam, I got one of the multiple choice questions on paper one wrong. Um, there was a question about um, movement in a coastal environment and I missed the word mass movement and ticked longshore drift when I should have ticked slumping. The only reassuring thing out of that is every single one of my class of year 11s did as well. And when I realized that I was like, ah, so retrieval was right in terms of I read movement and correctly ticked longshore drift. It's just I didn't read mass movement and reading the examiner reports was reassuring that lots of students had made that same mistake. Um, but I had to then work on how knowledge was going to be improved in my classroom to make sure the same mistake wasn't made again. And it was a little bit of reading the question. So the order on this side is slightly out um, because I changed how I was going to do this. So um, my, my students are used to coming in and finding a blank revision clock um, with a topic in the middle of it for them to fill in at the start of a lesson. That's one of my extended do nows because of the way our school is in terms of behavior. Do nows are quite difficult. So I tend to just put that on the piece on the table and they just come in and do it. Um, and also when you're not a PowerPoint person like me, do nows are quite difficult. So um, they're used to that, but I've changed the types of questioning I use in my knowledge quizzes. What I did last year with year 11 was I would stand at the front of the class, 10 questions, read them out. How many people died in the Kila? What's the term for a non-living component in an ecosystem, etc., etc., etc. And I started that with year 10. And then partway through the year, um, I started rating my students' confidence alongside their answers. So they had to write down a number. They have little knowledge quizzing books and I would take them in every so often and they had to write a number between zero and ten as to how confident they were with the answer. And I, I stole this from Research Ed probably. I'm not I'm not claiming this was my idea, but I stole it and I've used it and it's been illuminating because the idea is if it is an, if they rank, they rank their answer as a ten and they get it wrong, 
they had to buy me a Coke because I'm obsessed with Coke. And I am due an awful lot of Coke for my year terms at the end of the year. I'll be set for life. It'll be wonderful. Um, and if it's zero, it's that they've never heard any of the terminology in the question. And I track this confidence. Okay. And I was tracking the confidence and I read the questions out exactly the same each lesson because I thought the repetition was important. And so one day I decided to change it. And instead of saying, um, name one way of mitigating climate change, I changed it to name one global method of mitigating climate change. And the confidence dropped off a cliff. The answers were still correct, but the confidence of the students went from an average of eight on that question to an average of five, just because I had changed the wording of the question. So then I was like, ah, so their knowledge isn't good. All they're good at is they're remembering my cue and they remember my voice and then they can write the answer down. And if I'm always using the same questions written down for their assessments, it's exactly the same. So now they have no idea what to expect from my knowledge quizzes. Sometimes it's true or false. 308 people died in the Gila, true or false. And I vary the vocabulary. Uh, sometimes I go for explanation. So I start a sentence finish with the word because and they have to complete the sentence. They quite like that. That's a good skill to practice. Um, and I do the same with evaluation. So I've started changing the questions to successful response, um, less successful response, that kind of thing, rather than just name a response to the L'Aquila earthquake, because I wasn't really assessing their knowledge with that. That doesn't really work because then a question would be an evaluate question. It doesn't prove they can do that. Then I do matching where I just read numbers at them. Uh, so like 308, 8,841, 7.8, and they have to write down the case study it applies to. Um, and if this is the answer, what is the question? And multiple choice, once you've read up on how multiple choice quizzes work, I spent quite a long time writing terrible multiple choice quizzes. So I think you have to vary the knowledge quizzing that you are using. Otherwise, they just get dependent upon that knowledge. Um, so that's something I've certainly seen. And now their confidence is much, much higher, um, even though... I haven't really changed what I'm doing. I had to think a little bit harder. And I think that's what it was, was I wasn't thinking hard enough. I had got into the rhythm of the knowledge test and had forgotten why I was doing them in the first place. Now I am very aware. So are the students. Um, and they have verbal knowledge quizzes every lesson. And then twice a half term, they have a written one. And they rank their confidence with that. Um, because what I realized from sitting the exam and getting that question wrong, amongst others, um, is that when students were showing me that they didn't know the answer, yet that's really important, or if they were showing me that they had really low confidence on a right answer, that's really important as well. But the category I was leaving out was the wrong answers with the really high confidence. The kids writing a wrong answer and then saying their confidence was a nine or a nine or a half or even a 10, and it being wrong. And then I had to unpick, well, why is that the case? How can they be so confident about something and then get it wrong repeatedly? You know, I would expect if I corrected them the first time, like, nope, this is wrong, um, their confidence would either go down and they might repeat it again, or they'd get it right next time with lower confidence. And that's not what was happening. So I've had to change how we do corrections in the classroom. And, you know, the threat of having to buy me Coke seems to be working. Um, so, you know, it's re repetitive and it's based on the different types of questioning. And I assess that knowledge all the time. I know where my classes are strong and I know where they are not so strong and I know which students are strong where because it is time intensive. Although having since gone virtual and realised what's out there, all these virtual things that you guys are saying in the chat, I'm now using and I can make this much quicker and I will be using GoFormative going forwards when we go back to school because it's really changed how accessible my students' answers are and the progress tracking.
Multiple choice questions. Yes. So I, I, um, when I was doing my PGCE, um, we did a very interesting session on multiple choice questions, and I've never realised how difficult they are. That you need one that's obviously not right. In terms, so if you've got four answers, you've got to have one that's obviously not correct, because then that will catch any um, actually wrong knowledge in your students. That was really badly worded, but you get my point. Um, you've got to have one that's correct. Finding that miss. <laughs> and then of the other two, one of them's got to be close to being correct so that you can just see if it's like a misconception of the knowledge. And the other's got to be conceptually close, but not correct. So you can see if it's a misconception of the concept, which I guess with the longshore drift question that caught me out, it was the idea that all, there was one that was definitely wrong. Um, I think it was a weathering process and the rest are movement processes. But obviously one of them, longshore drift, is transportation of sediments. So conceptually it's movement, but it's not the wrong on the question. Yes, Daisy has done excellent work on multiple choice questions. And also there's, there's a lot on Twitter about it. And I'm still working on the art of getting it right so that students can show. I'm trying to get to the point where students' wrong answers show me more than students' right answers. That's what I'm trying to get to with the multiple choice questions. Like if I can understand the thinking behind wrong answers, then I think I will be a far more successful teacher than understanding the techniques that led to the right answers. Um, so that's what I'm using multiple choice questions for. Okay, moving on. How are we doing? You're waffling, Katie. You waffle. That's what you do. Uh, so subject knowledge. Um, a little shout out to Padlet. Again, not sponsored. One day I might get sponsored by some of these things I use all the time and talk about all the time, but it's not today. Padlet is a website where you can put extended reading links in whatever form you so like. Here you can have three different Padlets for free. So I have Key Stage 3, Key Stage 4 and Key Stage 5. And I just put everything there that I want my students to learn about or read about. And they now have created some of their own. And in year nine, I have lessons once a half term because we have a three year Key Stage 4. Um, I, find, I think we're very lucky to have that because it gives me so much more time to just love geography with my passionate geographers. Um, they have a lesson once a half term where they just go and they just add things and you can see what they're interested in, which doesn't actually match the specification. Um, like man-made disasters is a big one. Uh, a lot of my students are very interested in disasters that humans have been responsible for, which I've never thought about before. Um, alongside, they all want to study different countries of the world and places where you can't go on Google Earth. That's the other big one, like an awful lot of enrichment stuff to do about that. So it's just a little shout out for Padlet, which is padlet.com, I think worth looking at, particularly in the times we're currently in. Um, and then Joe kind of, I didn't realise she was going to talk about sense of place. Otherwise, I would have talked to her about it because I think she may have explained it better than me. But I'm going to come in anyway, because sense of place is what my degree was in. And it's also what I teach at A-level. And I think I've totally changed how I teach the human case study uh, at AQA this year for year 10. So I'm doing Nigeria. Woohoo! But um, I do it um, all in one go. So I do not make the division between changing economic world and urban issues and challenges. Now, whether or not this is a good idea, we will find out next year. But I feel like with my year 11s, because we were running out of time last year, I just ticked the boxes and didn't do Nigeria justice. Done tectonics justice, done tectonics to within an inch of its life. But then Nigeria, I didn't do quite so well. So for now I have the extra time. Um, I now am teaching Nigeria as a country 
and we are ticking off everything on the specification, but the students aren't seeing it as they're ticking off on the speci specification. So we've done the history of Nigeria, we've watched some Nollywood films, um, we've watched This Is Nigeria, the song, and now they can unpick the lyrics in that. That's a very good revision activity, because uh, there's an awful lot in that of um, misconceptions, perhaps, or perceptions of Nigeria that they can now challenge as well. They can bring in the positive arguments. And uh, last, just last night, one of my year 10s emailed me about Our Girl, which I think is on the BBC, telling me it was all about Nigeria and that I should watch it because uh, he was finding it really interesting. And I think it's just it's just that holistic approach has really changed it for them. And I've never seen them so engaged in their learning about a country. And I'm not sure if it's because children seem to be genuinely curious about other places around the world. But I think with the, I don't know if you've ever looked at drone footage on YouTube, but my goodness, I wish that existed when I was a child and at school, because that's amazing. And I just show them drone footage. I can't remember. I tried to find the name of the Nollywood film for my notes, but I can't remember. <laughs> I can't, it's on my, it's on my drive at school, which I can't access. Uh, when I find out, I will post on Twitter. Um, so I would strongly advocate maybe thinking about how you're teaching the country case study because up until that point I haven't really taught a country I've taught you know the Lakila and Nepal and Haiyan and the Amazon um, and the River Tees and Highcliffe in Christchurch because that's quite close to where we are and it's very different at the human side so I'm teaching Nigeria and then I will teach the UK as a country and hopefully that will give them that deeper understanding and it's no longer just a check the box exercise. And I want to go from concrete to abstract. I want them to see as much as possible what Nigeria is like from Google Earth and from drone footage and documentaries and the history and the culture and what's in the news, the links with China and the COVID-19 crisis. I sent that to them to have a look at and I got loads of feedback on that. I've never seen them like this. And my year 10s are very good generally because they've been stuck with me for three years now. Um, so, you know, they are good but they're really interested. Um, I don't know, Rianne. I This is the bit I can't qualify yet, is whether or not... Um, I mean, they can write about Lagos, which is the urban issue city, and they can write about Nigeria's context and how it's developed. And I haven't seen any issues yet, and I'm hoping it might make it easier to revise. But it seemed totally wrong for me to sequence it in terms of start with changing economic world, do Nigeria, then do the UK, then go back to Nigeria to do Lagos. But we've got to talk about Nigeria again because it's Lagos and then do Liverpool, which is my UK city. That just that sequencing to me, although I know there's retrieval in there, I felt that that seemed a little bit illogical. And I was like, actually, we're going to do it the other way around and see what happens. Um, so I think they have they've certainly engaged with it and they're really enjoying it. And I build in the retrieval through going back to what's on paper one. Yes, I read that in the examiner's report as well, the idea that people can get confused, but I'm hoping that um, that's not the case. I haven't seen it in any of their assessed answers yet. In fact, I'd say it gives a little bit more quality when they're talking about their case study more generally. And they talk about, basically they're not talking about Lagos, like it's totally removed from Nigeria, which is what my old year 11s used to do. like. Some of their answers from my year 11s, you would have believed Lagos was a country on its own. And I think by teaching it the way I've taught it and switching the order around, so teaching changing economic world first, has meant that they understand that Lagos is a city like Salisbury, where the majority of them live. It's a city in England. I think that is coming through clearer and they're more aware of Nigeria's wider significance as a country, as a massive country of 128 million people. I think they're seeing that a lot more. 
And do the weaker students get lost? Not that I have experienced my weaker students, it comes from confidence um, rather than getting lost. And I, and I do do it quite explicitly. I'm trying to think how I account for that now. It's kind of hard thinking about your own teaching off the own back. Um, so yes, so that's what I've done with our case studies. And also uh, we do Liverpool for GCSE, we do Liverpool for A-level for regenerating places because um, it's a really interesting case study to do. And we also bring the idea of sense of place and perception into the curriculum for key stages three and four now, as I come in as a 2IC of geography next year, key stage three will do sense of place as a unit rather than um, it being, I don't see why it's only really talked about in those sorts of terms at A-level. It's it's, it is fundamental to our students. They all have a sense of place. Um, so I think there's a real advocate for teaching sense of place throughout and showing students what makes a sense of place through photographs. I'm a big photographs fan as well, the visual aids. Um, and in terms of enrichment, they go away, my year 10s go away and send me things that they think are interesting. And also I told them they could all be futurologists based on their geographical knowledge and they were all fascinated by the idea of being a futurologist who makes predictions in the future. So um, that really increased their enrichment. Let's see. Everybody. Yes. When, once I have redesigned my key stage three units, I will uh, I will share them. When you teach the introduction lesson, um, I started with Nigeria and then weave the theory in. So um, I have always gone concrete to abstract. So I has I started. We started with Nigeria and I and I then weaved the theory in, mainly so that they could get away with thinking it was just another thing to check the box. And then the the last thing because I'm aware of time. And it was very difficult to decide how much. I'll do literacy and evaluation together quite quickly. So um, literacy, I think, being aware of the literacy you're using in the classroom. Um, I love the writing revolution uh, text pedagogy book, um, which came out a couple of years ago. Uh, that really changed how I think about how I structure explanations in the classroom and is one that I don't think every humanities teacher thinks to read. So I think that's quite a good text and I absolutely love that one. And in the classroom, I celebrate when students talk really well or express something really well. The work that I show on the visualizer in terms of woohoo, show call from Teach Like a Champion is often how they've expressed something and it balances. So if someone explains something really well in terms of their knowledge is excellent and they use lots of facts and figures, that's great. And I will celebrate that. But I also celebrate when their vocabulary is excellent and I want students to learn from that. So it's making that explicit in the classroom, just as I'll make explicit when I haven't explained something very well, like the Milankovitch cycles in natural climate change was awful. The students could say it better than me. So they did. And that, that was celebrating that. And also I, I, there was a question in the chat about texts. Yes, I do use texts in the classroom and I read aloud a lot. That's how I engage with textbooks and news articles, etc. I want students to hear someone reading to them in geography because uh, a little year seven last year saw me reading in a cover lesson because it was an English cover lesson and we had to read. And he looked at me and he said, um, Miss, why are you reading? I went, what? And he was like, you're a geography teacher. Geography teachers don't need to read. To which that was like, you know, when you have those moments in teaching where you're like, this is why I teach. That was one of them. Because I now every lesson we have things to read um, text. And I've noticed there's a really good book about Nigeria doing the rounds on Twitter, which I will be reading. Um, and that links on to the tier two vocab vocabulary, that language that 
we use when we're writing, but not necessarily in everyday speech and not necessarily in um, field specific vocabulary. So those words in between. And I think I have to start differentiating because I teach so much and I practically live in school, except when it's closed. Um, I was thinking that my lesson talk was everyday talk, but it's not. Um, and I recorded myself. So I spent much of my PGC and NQT year filming, which is awkward until you get over the awkwardness. And for those of you who are at the beginning of your career, it's a great like, oh, I can do this. I can actually teach. It's great um, validation of that. But then I basically looked at the words I was using frequently and then made sure I was defining them. So if you can, even if if you possess a smartwatch, when I do philosophical arguments like the cosmological argument every time I record me doing that and make sure that it made sense afterwards so it can just you don't you don't have to film yourself you can just film your voice and just check what you're saying um, I found that's made a real difference because there were words I was using that even I probably couldn't define explicitly enough for my students um, so be hyper aware of what you are using and use lots of synonyms so I'm a walking, talking thesaurus in the classroom, and sometimes I get the thesaurus out to show them how a thesaurus works. So I always provide an alternative word for any of my two-tier vocabulary. So explain, elaborate, um, evaluate, and then I talk about that's positives and negatives, or strengths and weaknesses. So I'm always there's always a backup word in my head, a little like how we all have a backup explanation. And um, the book I recommended was The Writing Revolution. Is literacy a focus? Um, not explicitly, no. And then I value better vocabulary. I don't have any displays in my classroom um, because I'm not very good at keeping them up to date, but I tend to write words on the whiteboard that I want students to use. And my, um, I watched my mentor, um, the amazing teacher, do one of those challenges where you have to use all the key vocabulary in an answer. I do that, but for tier two words, because I know my kids can use the words longshore drift in a question uh, and an answer. I know they can do that because I've taught them to do that. So instead, I focus on that vocabulary that makes them sound like excellent geography scholars. And also, I, um, I spent a lot of time looking at exam papers in other subjects and making sure that I'm pulling words across from there. Because one of the things I found while sitting in the paper myself was actually there was language in there I hadn't encountered in other geography papers because there are millions upon millions of words in the English language. So I pull across some other subjects as well. So I spent time and we have time at the moment um, looking at history papers and RE papers and science papers and maths papers, etc. Just to look at the language. And one thing I did far too late with year 11, but I didn't realise at the time, was one of the knowledge quizzes I gave them. And I guess not knowledge, vocabulary quizzes, was I gave them lots of tier two words and asked them to define the words. They couldn't do that very well. So I do that now more frequently with year 10. You know, just words like definite or significant or um, individual. That was one that caught me out. No one could say that was just one. Um, and I, I wish I'd done that earlier. So if you do anything, just check. Actually, can your students write down what words mean? Uh, and not 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 the tier three vocabulary, the, the tier two vocabulary, the words in the question like global, like that confidence one I talked about. My kids didn't understand what global meant. They didn't mean them. That meant the world. So I, I wish I'd done that sooner. And then to finish, I finish where I am still very much in development. Uh, my A-level geographers, wonderful that they are, and I adore them. Um, their evaluation skills, they don't think they're very good at, even though they are. They are. They just don't believe me. So um, 
I go beyond so what? So I've started this at GCSE so that the jump to A-level is not quite so far. Um, what's the point is one of the ones I use. Um, so not just so what? What's the point of that? Why would anybody do that? Why would you spend money on doing that in a country in development? Um, and also I take on the role, the role of the interrogator or as my Harry Potter loving classes call me the High Inquisitor, which is Umbridge in the final book. And I say why a lot. And this actually comes from a philosophy lesson where I was trying to prove that students do not have any free will, uh, which is what we teach at Key Stage 3 in philosophy. And then in Key Stage 3 in geography, we're not teaching anything anywhere near as challenging as that. And I was basically trying to prove and I was just like, why, 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 why? Like the, you know, the seagulls in Finding Nemo. And I just say why all the time. Um, and students now do it back to themselves. I've seen them doing it to themselves and each other when they are doing think pair share. I think because they think it's a joke. It's a stickability. And my lessons are not fun by any extent of the imagination. Um, and I think they they remember how they felt while I was doing the why and how passionate they got about justifying the fact that they definitely chose to eat popcorn that morning when I was like, well, um, who made the popcorn? Why did they do that? And they they remember that technique. And now they just ask why a lot. And it means that their answers are better. Um, and as long as they can defend, then I feel they're evaluating. Why do you do that? So that's stuck. Um, I force them to come off the fence. And I tell them that they have to have some kind of opinion. And that's all about boosting their confidence and making them realize that their opinions are valid. And so I value that most in my A-level essays is that that's what I champion. Um, and when I give feedback, I'm like, this is positive because this needs improving because I'm like, what am I doing here, A-level students? And eventually they start going, oh, you're evaluating this. I'm like, hey, there you go. That, yeah, I have an opinion. I am giving you an opinion on your work. I am evaluating your work. Now, why can't you do that? Um, questioning, I've changed it to, is that right in terms of an answer? Or is that the right thing to do if we're deba debating some geographical issue? Because I think Mark, Mark Enser talked really well about this at Research Ed, the idea of social geography and us becoming all about issues and preaching. And I'm like, actually, yes, that's a fair point. We're not here to preach about plastics. We're not here to preach about... Um, what's right and what's wrong. We're here to give students the knowledge so they can make their own informed decisions. So that's why I say, is that right? I tend to be very neutral myself, despite forcing them off the fence. Um, what would you do? Why would someone disagree? And one of the techniques, I'll finish on I'll finish on this because I'm, then it'll be 46 minutes. Um, that's a long time to listen to me. So I, I, I've done the silent debates. I don't know if you've come across the silent debates, but the silent debate is where you split the class into pairs an A3 piece of paper, all their exercise books. I found it works really well in their exercise books. Wish I'd realized that earlier on. And then they take it in turns to argue against each other, but they're not allowed to talk. That's why it's called a silent debate. And I love silent classrooms. So um, that was great for me. And the students hate it because they, whenever I say we're going to do a debate next lesson, they think they're going to shout at each other, but they're not. Mainly because I think that um, excludes, would certainly would have excluded me as an introvert when I was at school. And, you know, they always say be the teacher you needed when you were at school, uh, but also it, it makes the classroom very chaotic. And I think that's um, not a conducive environment for learning. So the silent debate means everybody can take part because they swap turns. And then I realized if you do it in their exercise books, you give them both one side of the argument, then they have to swap books. And then they're always writing rather than taking time, taking turns. And I took this to the next level where I made them argue against themselves. So they did a silent debate against themselves. And at the time, I got all these quizzical looks back at me like. What? I don't understand this. It's like, just argue against yourself. You're going to make one point and then you're going to turn it over 
and then you're going to argue against yourself and try to disprove yourself. And that meant that they realised that they actually have one opinion that they care about more than the other side, but then they could see the weaknesses and then the, the written work they produced afterwards was better. But I think that's what I was aiming for with the paired silent debate, but I'm not sure if it happened because I think they were like, well, I don't like the person I'm sat next to, so I'm not going to listen to them anyway. Whereas if they're arguing against themselves, which is basically what I do all the time, then they realise their value and they realise that if they've thought of that argument, that weakness, then maybe it's a little bit more valuable. So I saw a total change in the quality of their written work afterwards because it was thinking hard, because it stuck. All of that amazing pedagogy that comes out of, you know, retrieval and Rosenshine, all that jazz, deliberate practice. But I think it was because it pitted them against themselves. And my students can be quite competitive with themselves they want to be better than they were the lesson before that's what I champion above all in my classroom is their constant improvement so they're able to do it that way so that's that is now what I'm working on is how can I continue to push my students to be better at evaluating to be better at being critical and I'm just going to go steal all Catherine's ideas um, yes I do the continuum as well um, and I'm like no you cannot be at 50 percent you you might you be at 51 percent and you be at 49 percent that's right, isn't it, maths? Yes. Um, but you cannot be at 50% get off the fence. Okay. Um, yes, I'm going to wrap up now. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for engaging. I hope it was interesting. I hope you took something away from it. Thanks once again for listening to this week's episode of JogPod. We are arranging interviews with more guests remotely. So keep your eyes peeled for new episodes coming soon.